Well, I think we all learned back in elementary school that soil, water, and sunlight were what plants need to survive. Uh, but for us to produce not just plants, but also food, and food for billions of people, many of which don't live anywhere near a farm, we need fertilizer, especially nitrogen. Lots and lots of nitrogen. Crops need other nutrients as well, obviously, but none are more essential than nitrogen. And before the 1900s, that mostly came from manure or compost or the very slow process of microbes that are naturally occurring and able to fix small quantities of nitrogen from the air and store them over time. And on that point, that fact that nitrogen exists all around us, it's in the air, that's the basis for what is likely the greatest agricultural technology ever invented in history, the Haber-Bosch process, which involved the discovery and the commercialization of how to convert atmospheric nitrogen in the air into really the building block for modern agriculture, which is fixed nitrogen. Now, I do want to stay right now because I know some of you are already triggered. The Haber-Bosch process certainly has its trade-offs, and we're going to get into some of those. But without this process, it's estimated that 2 to 3 billion people in the world's population today, about 40% of us, would starve to death. And if that doesn't hit home hard enough, it's also estimated that about half of the nitrogen in your body derived from a Haber-Bosch facility. Now, listen to this short excerpt from Alchemy of Air by Thomas Hager, which really is the book that much of today's episode is based on. Hager says, while the population nearly quadrupled during the 20th century, food production, thanks first to Haber-Bosch, second to improved genetic strains of rice and wheat, increased nearly sevenfold. That is the simple math behind today's era of plenty. Before we dive in deeper, I want to take just a minute here to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor for this quarter. One more time is the Soy Checkoff. It takes more than hard work to move a commodity. It takes a strategic plan and farmer leaders like you to implement it. And that's your Soy Checkoff. So whether it's finding new markets for oil and meal, investing in production research to help get more from every acre, working with the supply chain to impact your bottom line, having a sound plan delivers results. And you and your fellow soybean farmers are proving it through your Soy Checkoff. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org. And thank you once again to the Soy Checkoff for supporting agricultural innovation and, of course, the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right. Now, considering how many of you out there listening have recommended the book Alchemy of Air to me over the years, I know several of you have already read it, but I still wanted to in this next episode in our History of Agriculture series, focus on this world changing agricultural innovation. Uh, so despite this story being more well known than our last one, which is uh, with William J. Morris in episode 370, I still definitely think this is worth exploring, both for its significance and the insights that connect, in my opinion, directly to us as people trying to innovate in the ag industry out there today in 2023. And we'll get into the discovery itself, the challenges of commercializing this technology, which will be a big part of today's episode, the role of the Haber-Bosch process in industrializing agriculture, how the German government saw this technology as not only food security, but also a way to power their war efforts, unfortunately. And we'll end on some of the uh, negative environmental aspects of producing so much nitrogen and what current innovations might push this fertilizer industry forward in the future. Now, 
It might be intuitive here to focus on Fritz Haber for this episode. He is, after all, the genius credited with the invention of the process of fixing nitrogen from the air. He was also friends with Einstein, and he went on to a very complicated, very controversial, and in some ways tragic career developing chemical weapons for the German military, among other things. Uh, but I've instead decided to focus on the other guy in the Haber-Bosch equation, Karl Bosch. At the time Fritz Haber discovered this process of synthetic nitrogen, Karl Bosch was in his 30s working as a chemist and engineer at BASF. Yep, the same BASF that you've probably heard of recently in today's agribusiness. His innovation wasn't the big scientific discovery or the daring idea to create a new venture or create a new business model. Nope. The impressive part of Karl Bosch's story was his relentless doggedness to make the science and engineering work at scale, to take what Fritz Haber proved possible in a lab environment and change it almost completely into something that could be efficiently, reliably, and economically operated at a at a commercial scale. And without that, I'm convinced it would have taken much, much, much longer uh, for this process of fixed nitrogen to make any sort of a meaningful impact on agriculture. And I'll make this point a little more clear in just a little bit. But first, let's uh, set the scene here for what was happening in the world. This would have been 120 plus years ago that led to this discovery behind the Haber-Bosch process. It was actually 1898, and the new president of the British Academy of Sciences, a chemist named Sir William Crookes, gives a big speech that serves as a warning. In it, he says, and, and here I am reading from Alchemy of Air, again by Thomas Heger. His research led him to estimate, he said, that humans would begin dying of hunger in large numbers sometime around the 1930s. There was only one way to stop it, he said, and then he told them what it was. All right, so pausing here from Alchemy of Air, he went on to say that the most productive farms were great at using things like manure and compost and crop rotation to get the most out of their farms, but it never seemed to be enough. It never seemed to be productive enough, especially considering during the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution was happening and people were migrating to cities. Populations were growing much faster than the ability for these farms to produce adequate amounts of food. In some cases, in some areas of the world, farmers would produce a crop only then to move on to new virgin soil for the next one. But obviously, this can only go on so long. It was unsustainable. And I'm using that trigger word on purpose here because it's interesting to see how sustainability, although I don't think they called it that, looked during this period of the late 1800s, early 1900s versus how it looks today. There are people today who believe we could and we should farm without any synthetic inputs and that we could somehow do that without sacrificing any of our global food security. Now, I'm not one of those people. I do think it's a noble and worthwhile goal to continue to find ways to reduce the need for synthetic inputs. Uh, and we talk about that a lot here on the show. But to be clear, this need for synthetic nitrogen was a global emergency back at this time. They were trying to figure out how do we become more sustainable? And the answer they could think of was how do we make synthetic nitrogen? It would really fix a lot of our problems. And this was at a time when we had fewer than 2 billion people versus today north of seven, almost to 8 billion. 
At this time, the vast majority of fertilizer was mined in the form of Chilean nitrate and shipped around the world. Two thirds, in fact, of the global nitrogen came from Chile. Crooks and others were concerned about how much longer that supply could last and the vulnerability of having just kind of that one source to depend on for their food supply. Uh, Hager continues in his book. He says uh, there was only one answer. Crooks said the creation of vast amounts of fertilizer new fertilizer by the thousands of tons and there was not enough natural fertilizer in the world to meet the needs of the coming 20th century some way would have to be found to make more to make it synthetically to make it in factories finding new ways to make fertilizer discovering and making what he called chemical manures crooks told his audience was the great challenge of their time all right one point i want to emphasize here is that not everyone took this point crooks was making seriously some likely thought chilean nitrate would be more than adequate and would last a long 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 time others thought that agriculture would probably be fine the way it was i mean it had gotten them this far right well many probably thought crooks was being an alarmist and i don't know how things would have gone without fritz haber and others taking crooks challenge seriously but i do know that history would have played out a whole lot differently and many of us listening probably wouldn't be here there are some parallels i think with today's climate conversation scientists and activists are very vocal about uh, what's ahead calling it the greatest challenge of our time similar to how crooks did over 100 years ago relying heavily on stories just as crooks told of perils yet to come and stories can be really motivating for innovation. I love stories. That's why I'm here. That's why I do this. Uh, but they can also be met with skepticism. And I'm not saying skepticism is bad in any way, uh, but I do wonder if there might be an innovation or set of innovations on the scale of what we're talking about here today with the Haber-Bosch process to address that modern challenge, that climate challenge. And you'll hear me wonder throughout today's episode if we still have people like Carl Bosch that are willing to work tirelessly on big problems and seemingly sacrifice it all for the hope of success in the face of adversity and uncertainty. Anyway, I wanted to mention that parallel here to today's climate conversation, not to hijack it and make it about climate, but I think it's thought provoking to the challenges of our time today, uh, where maybe it's not about trying to keep pace with a growing population as much as it is uh, trying to preserve uh, our natural resources, our natural ecosystem in some way. Anyway, I think there's similar challenges, but uh, maybe slightly different, which I think makes these lessons from Carl Bosch all the more relevant. So as I said, out of this challenge from Crooks came several scientists working on this problem of trying to fix atmospheric nitrogen, including German chemist Fritz Haber. In 1909, Haber demonstrated on his little tabletop device the process of converting nitrogen from the air into ammonia, a form of fixed nitrogen. Uh, the device worked at a rate of 125 milliliters or about four fluid ounces per hour which of course is very, very little. Uh, it's amazing though, how scientists can toil away so tediously at such a small scale to get to this point that they advance the understanding uh, of what's possible, even though it's on such a small scale that somebody like me, who's always thinking in terms of business and practicalities, like, so what? You can make four ounces of ammonia, but uh, 
luckily for us, Haber got in touch with a company that a lot of us are familiar with, BASF. Uh, Haber wrote to BASF about his findings and casually mentioned, of course, that another competitor was interested. I love that little tidbit in funding further research. The uh, inquiry ultimately reached the BASF chairman, Heinrich von Brunk, who's another guy I would just love to have interviewed for this show should we... Uh, have lived at the same time in the decades before this uh, invention by Habers in the late 1800s. Von Brunk had essentially bet the company at BASF on creating synthetic indigo. Uh, there was a big need for a more economical and more reliable source of this important dye at the time. And Von Brunk seemingly kind of bet it all to make it happen, which uh, because of the success, because he pulled it off, he ended up being propelled into the chairman role of that company. Uh, he's known as an audacious leader, an innovator, even a gambler. And now at this time, when he heard about Haber's invention, he saw what could be his next big moonshot in synthetic nitrogen. And he was willing to deploy as many resources as it took to make it happen. Now, this is the type of risk taking that I wonder if it still exists in today's agribusiness. Uh, I could be proven wrong, and I'd love for you to tell me I'm wrong and point to examples, but I don't see a lot of companies kind of going all in on this. Uh, they're startups, sure, but like established companies, profitable companies kind of saying, this is what we're going to rally our resources behind for the next evolution of our company. I realize it was a different time in, in BASF. It was a different company then than it is today. And I'm not really talking about BASF specifically, just generally our agribusinesses seem to be more interested in sort of hedging their bets, playing it safe and and protecting the status quo. Now, maybe that's better for their shareholders, uh, but I'm not sure it's better for the future of agriculture, which is what I talk about here. And it probably puts them at a big risk of the innovator's dilemma, as Clayton Christensen famously wrote about. Anyway, uh, on the team that Von Brunk sent to look at the technology Haber had developed, uh, he included a 35-year-old named Carl Bosch, and that's going to be the focus of the rest of our episode today. He was a chemist and engineer who was known to be a tinkerer, someone who just loved machines and liked to get his hands dirty, which separated him from his colleagues who were more your classic chemist or engineer Types, it would seem. I love this tidbit about Bosch is that he he threw his life into his work. That was pretty much what he focused on and obsessed on, except for he liked on Friday nights to go bowling and drink beer. But back to work again on Saturday morning. I don't know. That's it just seems like my type of guy, even though I'm not a bowler, but it sounds fun. Anyway, Bosch had already found flaws in another process of trying to fix nitrogen from another chemist named Wilhelm Ostwald, which I think he'll come up again here in today's episode. And he saw flaws in the idea of scaling up Bosch's approach as well. But for whatever reason, he took a huge risk in telling Von Brunk and his colleagues at BASF that he thought they could make it work. BASF eventually struck a deal with Haber and Bosch did just that. He went to work. He had won Von Brunk's complete support to build a team and spend the money they needed to scale this process. Hager wrote in Alchemy of Error of this moment after Haber successfully demonstrated the process to BASF. And I, I just love the way he writes this. He says, the demonstration was a small machine producing a small amount of ammonia for a small group of men, but it marked a turning point in human history. One historian later compared these hours in Haber's lab to the Wright brothers' flight at Kitty Hawk or Edison's discovery of a successful light bulb. Haber was a bouillant. He felt BASF would now back his process to build it into an industry. He would share in the profits. He had not only answered Crook's challenge, but he had beaten Nernst and succeeded where Ostwald had failed. 
those are other chemists. He had found the answer to one of the biggest scientific challenges in the world. He was about to become famous. He was about to become rich. He had found the Philosopher's Stone. But there were some major obstacles here, and this is why we're going to focus on Bosch from pretty much here on out. Extreme temperature and pressure are needed to make this process happen. In Haber's device, he used quartz for the reaction chamber, which couldn't be re replicated at a larger scale. Uh, his compressor was only available to squeeze gases into a very, very tiny space. And the catalyst he used was osmium, which literally did not exist in large quantities anywhere in the world. So for Bosch to turn Haber's device into something that could operate at a larger scale. At first, they were trying to do so, I think, 10x larger for their first prototype. He needed to almost rethink everything. And that's what's interesting here is like Haber put this together to show it was possible. But Bosch is thinking like, OK, I need to redo everything in order for this to actually become fertilizer at any point in time in the future. Uh, but what he had going for him was an obsession for making this work, the support of a very talented team, most notably Alwyn Midhosh, who was completely instrumental in testing new materials and catalysts, and the complete support and blank check from his boss, Heinrich von Brunk, who was once again betting the company's future on a long shot. One year later, in 1910, Bosch, Mithosh, and the rest of the team succeeded in operating a scaled-up prototype of Haber's process. It included a different catalyst, in this case iron mixed with a couple other elements, a new compressor, a different reaction chamber, and was able to produce hundreds of pounds of ammonia per day. They called it Big Rigs, and just days after they started operating it, the device burst. The hydrogen was causing so much pressure that it cracked the steel walls of the chamber. Bosch, who I'm surprised was in such good humor at this point, uh, joked that it was a good thing that they weren't using osmium as their catalyst because they would have lost the entire world supply in just a few days. But despite the setback, uh, the prototype was a success. They were able to produce the ammonia uh, and they were making progress. Even Haber himself in some ways seems surprised by the progress they were making. In 1910, he wrote to BASF and said, I'm extremely happy that Dr. Bosch and his assistants have succeeded in making such a great advance. I congratulate him and you. But it is remarkable how in the course of things, new special features always come to light. Here, iron, with which Oswald first worked, and which we then tested hundreds of times in its pure state, is now found to function when impure, meaning that the chemicals were mixed together. He, said, he goes on to say, it strikes me again how one should follow every track to its end. I think there's got to be some deep insights there for innovators. I want to include that because it's a great reminder that in this process of finding new ways and new things, uh, it's important to remember that, number one, never write off a solution until you can track it to its end, as Haber just said. And number two, you have to continue to be open to new features and new ideas and not close your mind to anything just because it, quote unquote, didn't work in the past. And I know we all have Heard that, and many of us probably said that, but it's important to keep that open mind to all possibilities and all options and to track them to their end. Bosch, Mitosh, and the growing team of scientists and engineers continued to troubleshoot. In fact, I read in Alchemy of Air at one point that Bosch had doubled the amount of scientists and engineers at BASF just working on this one project. It just goes to show how all in they were on this particular venture. Ultimately, they came up with a design they called Bosch holes, which were just perforations in the steel to let some of that hydrogen out during the process. And by early 1911, their new prototype plant was turning out two tons of ammonia per day. 
This was an incredible feat, and there were numerous technical obstacles along the way that I won't go into right here, but I am just amazed at the, the diligence and the ingenuity it took to pull this off, to, to go from that little tiny device that Haber had that was just kind of dripping out tiny little milliliters of ammonia to two tons of ammonia today in two years. It's just amazing. They were ready now to begin construction of their first scaled version of the commercial synthetic nitrogen plant. And just as they were about to break ground on that first plant, which was located in Oppau, Germany, along the Rhine River, two major events happened. Number one, Heinrich von Brunk, their leader and supporter who was betting the company on this project, suddenly died unexpectedly. And then number two, they found out that BASF was being sued to nullify Haber's patent by a competitor saying another scientist invented the process first. So BASF ended up winning that lawsuit. I won't go into those details and opening the Opal plant in 1913. After startup costs, ammonia was pretty cheap to manufacture. And according to Hager, the process generated most of the energy it needed. So it was almost self-sustaining. Uh, but BASF was seemingly destroying the competition for fertilizer, which at the time consisted of Chilean nitrate, Norwegian ARC process fertilizer, which is just another process to try to get synthetic nitrogen, and a little bit of calcium cyanamide, which was being developed by a company that had just been started a few years earlier called American Cyanamide Company, who some of you I'm sure have heard of. Uh, then after the technical challenges, the lawsuit and the death of the chairman of the company, another big challenge hit World War One. The interest in BASF's work shifted from fertilizer for food to nitric acid for explosives and ammunition. Bosch came up with a method to turn his ammonia into nitric acid, uh, but he really didn't seem to like the idea of his inventions going to kill people in war. He called it, quote, this dirty business. But there's no doubt that BASF leveraged the government's interest in their own national security for their own company benefit as well to accelerate plans to build a second location in Loina. So with Opau near the Rhine River and uh, close to the border that they shared with France, it became a major strategic target for French bombings during the war. The government offered to finance a bigger facility further away, which they ended up doing so in Loina. This new facility, bigger facility, opened in 1917, uh, and it grew to produce 160,000 tons of ammonia per year by the end of the war, almost all of which fed into this war machine. Uh, this move accelerated BASF's capacity and also put them firmly in bed with the German government, which ended up surrendering that next year in 1918, ending World War One. And quick note on that, you know, for better or worse, a surge in government investment and interest in a national security or broader societal problem has shown to be a huge driver of agricultural innovation and expansion. In our first episode on the history of agriculture. It was World War II and soybean production. Today, it's World War One and the uh, opening of this second commercial plant, which certainly was accelerated by the willingness of the government to back these efforts that BASF was making. Uh, we're seeing similar type of tailwinds right now when it comes to climate smart agriculture. And while I'm not trying to condone companies fueling war efforts, there's no denying that this led to an accelerated advancement in synthetic nitrogen production capability. And I think it's important to consider for innovators to uh, look at where are those tailwinds happening? Where's the interest happening? Where's the investment happening? And to try to find ways to aim big uh, with those tailwinds in place. 
Anyway, Bosch spent the next years trying to keep France from stealing trade secrets after the war. He stalled as much as possible and ultimately struck a deal. It's kind of an interesting story, a secret deal with a French chemical company to build a Haber Bosch facility there, which was seen by the BASF board as a great move for their own self-preservation. Bosch was soon after promoted to head of the company, uh, but the next several years proved really, really difficult for him. He was much more of a machine guy and a hands-on guy, an operational guy than a people person. And he found himself dealing with employees and labor groups and other bureaucracy that maybe wasn't his natural cup of tea. Then, in 1921, there was a major explosion at Opau. Uh, one end of the plant was obliterated and hundreds of people died. It's thought that the practice they used at the time of small blast to break up clumpy fertilizer happened repeatedly because of some extra humidity in the plant, and ultimately 561 people died, 1,700 were injured, and the repairs cost the company about half a billion marks. Bosch was said to never be the same after that. He started to drink more heavily and stay more secluded. He was 48 years old at the time. Two years later, in 1923, Bosch took a trip to the U.S. He wanted to learn more about how large American corporations operated, and he came away with two big insights that would sort of guide the direction he would take in the coming years, one of which was that Americans at the time were obsessed with automobiles, and Bosch became convinced that the future belonged to gasoline. And then the second insight was there was real opportunity for German chemical companies to join forces to compete globally. He set his sights at BASF on the direction of making synthetic gasoline, which ultimately didn't pan out because part of the thesis was that we were going to run out of oil in the coming decade or two. And instead, they just kept finding more and more reserves. So the synthetic gasoline market never really took off. Uh, but what did materialize was the formation of a German conglomerate of chemical and pharmaceutical companies, which included BASF, Bayer, Hearst. I'm sure I'm butchering that, but that was the company that tried to sue BASF to nullify their patent years ago, uh, and a few others. They named this conglomerate IG Farben, which meant the Dye Industry Syndicate Stock Corporation. Bosch was named the chairman. In 1931, Bosch was notified that he would receive a Nobel Prize in chemistry for his work in ammonia production. It was a surprise to him and a lot of other people because his role was more in commercializing than conceptualizing. I think this is just a really important insight from Bosch's story, is that Maybe the true innovators, the unspoken heroes in a lot of cases, aren't the ones who have the first idea, but they're the ones who can figure out how to make the idea work. They're the ones who can become so obsessed with the idea that they don't automatically default to, well, see, it's only on a small scale. It'll never be practical. They can actually see the vision of what it can be and have these skills and the ability to put a team together to make it happen. That's uh, one of the reasons I love talking to entrepreneurs on this show, because so often that's the position they're in. Uh, but that can be true for any of us on, on all sorts of different scales of it's not so much the idea that matters, but it's the execution. It's the ability to really see it through to the end. Time Magazine described Bosch at his acceptance speech of the Nobel Prize as blocky, bristly Professor Bosch, a man who says little, listens much, dresses carelessly, and peers through spectacles at the workings of the great machinery he has set into motion. 
One of the last big chapters in Bosch's career and life was the rise in popularity of Nazis within Germany, and that worried Bosch. He felt they were dangerous, and he also felt they were bad for business. At first, he spoke very publicly against them. He's quoted as saying, The purpose of the state is to make sure that the gainful employment and the coexistence of individuals and nations proceeds with the least possible amount of friction. People should be free to make products, make money, and pursue their interests. Beyond that, government should get out of the way. But as the Nazis rose to power, Bosch's public comments became more and more neutral, and he spent time trying to protect his company's interests. Hager wrote, To save Loina, it seemed he was prepared to make a deal with the devil. As with all such deals, the real price would be disclosed and paid only later. Bosch seemed to be publicly aligning with those in power, but quietly defiant of them, or at least torn. Farben ended up moving Bosch out of day-to-day operations, and he continued to battle worsening depression. Hager added, Bosch's life, his breakthroughs in factories, his attempts to feed the world and make profits for his company were being used to arm and fuel the Nazi machine. Bosch moved suddenly to Sicily in 1940 shortly after World War II started, and he died a few months later. But as you know, since that time, Haber-Bosch facilities have spread throughout the world. It truly is the technology that is the building block of our modern food system. People do still unfortunately die from starvation, but mostly due to economics and distribution and local crop failures or, or in a lot of cases, armed conflict. Not so much due to a global food shortage, thanks in large part to the Haber-Bosch process. There have been tremendous improvements made, but the process is still kind of the same at its core. But just to give you an idea, Bosch's tallest ovens were 30 feet tall. Today, they're over 100 feet tall. And in Bosch's lifetime, it took an average of 1,600 workers to produce 1,000 tons a day of ammonia. Today, it takes only 55 workers. And back then, it took about four times as much energy to produce a ton of fertilizer than it does today. But it's important to note that Haber-Bosch plants still consume about 1% of the world's energy. Which brings me to my final point. This incredible technology that I've been arguably glorifying here in this episode does not come without its trade-offs. Having an abundance of nitrogen in the world is great for growing our crops and keeping our food supply secure. It's not so great that it ends up also in our waterways and in our air. Now, do not villainize farmers for this. Nobody wants to see all of that nitrogen end up in the crops more than farmers, but uh, it inevitably is going to happen when you have this much nitrogen out in the world. It's a problem a lot of startups are working on, you know, this this nitrogen use efficiency or nutrient use efficiency, and we do still have a long way to go on it. It is ripe for innovation, and I do see companies out there making progress in it, but it's important to note that it is certainly a trade-off of having this abundance of nitrogen. Uh, starvation may not be as big of a problem, but obesity is. And fertilizer production is also a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. So these are the problems of our time. Yeah, they're different than the ones Carl Bosch faced and Fritz Haber faced, but they're equally, in my opinion, as solvable when you have people like Bosch to take on these challenges. So hopefully these stories of the history of agriculture can help you, can help me, can help other ag innovators realize that the right people and the right resources at the right time really can rise to the challenges we face today. 
Really encourage you to go read The Alchemy of Air by Thomas Hager. Go pick it up. Uh, read the entire book. It's all fascinating. Uh, and for more episodes of mine on fertilizer, here's a couple you could check out. 325, which is electrified and distributed fertilizer production featuring nitricity. 337, synthetic biology for nature-based and data-driven farming with Travis Bayer and Adam Lytle of Sound Ag. 348, we just did investing in the future of fertilizer with Sarah Nolette of Tenacious Ventures. And of course, you can check out our first history of agriculture episode done a couple months ago 370 uh, with William J. Morris anyway that's going to do it for today's episode went a little bit over the amount of time I wanted to but this is just a really intense topic and I, I didn't even scratch the surface so go check out Alchemy of Air listen to those other episodes thank you so much to the Soy Checkoff for sponsoring this quarter of the Future of Agriculture podcast last but certainly not least thank you for your time and your attention I never take it lightly I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation